Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash DPR. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Takeda Development Center Americas Incorporated. Welcome to this Pure Voice on Demand activity based on a recent live event. This video based activity comprises four presentations. At any time during this activity, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon.、Um, I'm uh, and my fac the faculty are very、um, glad that、uh, you are all here.、Um, and、um, we welcome you to this CE Educational Symposium entitled Patients Receiving Immunoglobin Therapy Emerging Technology. For patient integrated care. Before we start, please make sure、um, your cell phones are in silent or in vibrant mode.、Uh, this e event is being recorded. So, my name is Martin Snagen. I'm an internist immunologist here in the Erasmus MC nearby, one kilometer from here in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. And I'd like to introduce the faculty. Uh, Nicholas Ryder. He is、uh, the chair of the division clinical informatics.、Uh, he's an associate professor in pediatrics, allergy, and, and immunology、um, in、uh, Liberty Mountain Medical Group, Lynchburg, Virginia, and the USA. And further,、uh, we have a very experienced nurse, Dorothy Gross Krull, and I may say Tio, a senior specialist. Uh, nurse in Allergy and Clinical Immunology from King's College、uh, Hospital, NIH Foundation Trust in London, United Kingdom. You know, the United Kingdom is the island in front of our coast. So I will give the word to Nick Ryder. Thank you, Martin. Good afternoon. It's really a pleasure to be here.、Um, exciting to be here. First time in the Netherlands, a beautiful, beautiful country.、Um, and as we kick off this symposium on technology, I'd like to ask a question. Why should we be concerned about technology in this space, care of patients with IEI? Many of us may have an interest in science, STEM, engineering, and the technology in and of itself may be interesting. But I'd like to propose that the technology might be most beneficial as it pertains to a particular domain that's important to everyone in this room, whether you're a patient, a healthcare provider, a representative from industry. And this domain, sometimes called the fourth dimension, Is something that you can't buy more of, even if you're incredibly wealthy. It's important to everyone here. And that dimension is, and that entity is, time. So, how can technology benefit, extend time, and improve the quality of time for patients and for a healthcare provider? Who recognizes the person on the right side of the screen? Anyone brave enough to say who this is? Loki, excellent. If you're like me, and many of you are fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know that Loki is also known as the god of mischief. And now in season two, Loki undergoes this phenomenon that's very interesting called time slipping, where he'll suddenly be ripped from the present to the past and then to the, to the future, spontaneously and sporadically. On the left, or the, I guess your left hand side of this screen, Is showing the depiction of linear time and the branching of time that this 
this organization that Loki has become associated with, the Time Variance Authority, tends to try to manage time. So I think we think about Loki slipping in and out of the present. I think on some level, this is an experience that's uh, well understood by patients when they're given a diagnosis, healthcare providers when they have to give a diagnosis, wishing that we could understand what the future looks like, uh, understanding, explaining of the past, and so forth. So let me ask you a question, whether you're a patient who's received the diagnosis of an IEI or a healthcare provider who's given the diagnosis. If you're in neither of those categories, imagine you're sitting in an exam room and your healthcare provider has just given you a diagnosis, has provided you with a diagnosis. You're thinking about time. You're asking, what does this mean for me today? Does this explain the problems I had in the past? Does this forecast and help me understand what the future looks like? Perhaps technology can help ease some of this concern. This might be a good depiction of the way the mind of a patient or a healthcare provider looks like in that moment. This fragmentation of time and trying to understand uh, the disease and what it means for them. Some estimates suggest, and of course this is data that's well known to many in the room, that a new patient, time with a new patient by a healthcare provider, whether they're a specialist or a primary care physician may only enumerate 12 minutes and seven minutes for a follow-up patient. This is no time whatsoever. This is not, even if we had two, three hours, we couldn't explore everything that we need to in that moment. So how can technology expand this time, make it more useful, make it more relevant, and maybe even extend beyond that exam room visit? By show of hands, who has used a device not just a phone, but a device that looks exactly like the one I'm showing here. A few of you, right? Contrast that technology that was bolted to a wall. You couldn't move with it. You had to speak to someone in just that location. You could only hear their voice. If their voice went away, you didn't know if they just weren't speaking or maybe the electricity disconnected or there was a problem with the phone line. And compare and contrast that to what we see on your right, and that is virtual meetings that we do all the time. During the pandemic, if we had only had this, it would have been very hard to communicate and maintain relationships. But even though this is maybe not as useful as being in person, uh, we were able to maintain relationships through technology. And this is one simple example, maybe how technology enhanced time, enhanced relationships, and improved both. So, who recognizes this picture? Very nice. Classic rock fans in the audience, I share your enthusiasm. This is the cover uh, of Led Zeppelin's album four, Led Zeppelin four, containing the track Stairway to Heaven. I like this picture because it shows a person who is encumbered, encumbered by a burden. This burden could be a bundle of sticks or it could be a disease. And when we look at this individual, we see a stoop posture, needing assistive devices, a face that looks dismayed. This could be the picture of a chronic disease. How could technology ease this burden, improve this burden, allow the posture to be restored, allow the person to be free of burden? Think about disruption. We hear that term a lot. Disruption sometimes is positive, sometimes is negative. Showing on this side of the screen, the journey depicted by Courier and Ives 
of a painting of individuals crossing a mountain range, in this case, the Rocky Mountains in the Western United States. It took many months, lives were lost because of the danger, the physical environment and surroundings. Contrast that to the disruption of flight and travel, which many of us used uh, to get here to this wonderful conference, crossing oceans and mountains in minutes or hours. Disruption that has been very positive technology that largely has improved quality of life and extended and improved. But we want technology, not just for technology's sake. We don't want technology to be siloed and not communicating across, in the case, maybe a patient's journey from their outpatient visits to their hospitalizations to their daily life. We want an interconnected system of technology where devices, technology, whether it's algorithms, apps, et cetera, is interconnected to improve and enhance the experience of time. Maybe prolong life, but certainly improve quality. So what we want is technology that integrates and inter- interoper- is interoperable across multiple domains. So as we walk through the next several minutes of this hour in time, I'd like for us to consider how technology can optimally serve the patient and the health healthcare provider to extend time, improve quality, improve quality of life, avoid adverse events, and every way possible, expand the time and the quality for individual. Thank you. So, um- Thank you, Nick, for a great talk. And um, as you pointed out, we have to we need to find a way to improve the life of our patients. And um, let's focus on all what what we learned and what we learned from the past and recently, and also in other disease areas, areas of other chronic diseases, and uh, healthcare management using technology. When we go back in time. Um, Hundred years ago, it was um, uh, insulin. Uh, insulin was discovered, and at that time, where you developed a diabetes type one, um, you are almost sure you will die because there was no therapy. Later on, inter- insulin came, actually, animal insulin that saved lives. Lives, and what you see over here, um, this is the first artificial pancreas supplying insulin in a patient who needs two lines of effusion. It's quite dangerous. You need a big car. And actually, insulin is a dangerous molecule. Too much is dangerous and may kill you, actually. So it's a dangerous therapy. Nowadays, uh, technology uh, proved and discovered new possibilities. And you see on the right side of the uh, of the slide, um, you see, uh, you can measure your glucose level continuously by having sensor on the skin, which is very, uh, yeah, very important uh, development. Uh, further on, on the next slide, um, you see the same system measuring glucose level through your skin, uh, going to your uh, iPhone or whatever phone, uh, measure your glucose level. You can see your glucose level. And based on an algorithm, based on your daily activities, 
uh, this can react and release insulin directly by a pump, which is uh, a really artificial system which looks like the normal regulation of glucose level in the circulation. So, um, what can we learn? Can we learn something about this to use it for immunoglobulin substitution? Actually, we cannot compare IgG with insulin. Insulin is a direct active molecule changing your metabolism, and IgG is not. It's a chronic, giving you chronic protection against uh, microbes and invaders. So we cannot. But maybe, um, maybe uh, patients who are receiving intravenous immunoglobulins have side effects. And it's nice to have a continuous um, monitoring in these patients when they have uh, side effects of the infusion, like uh, heart beatings, uh, increased pulse rhythm, flush, um, a drop in your blood pressure, and measure this continuously we can learn that from uh, we can learn it from this system actually. Nick, when you look at this system, when you look at it, um, what kind of improvements do we need? What can we improve? What yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a great example of where we can go with inborn errors of immunity. Certainly, when you look at the history of diabetes and that first slide with the large cart. Um, how the patient is encumbered by not only the therapy, the, the experience of the therapy. We know that although immunoglobulin replacement therapy has, has really, uh, the delivery uh, and the administration has improved over time, you know, patients still have burden at home. I think understanding that in real time through technology, whether that's via apps uh, or other devices uh, at the point of care that could expedite um, reduce the time for infusions, maybe even predict heralding side effects would be a tremendous benefit. So um, we can learn from that. We can improve. There are new directions uh, to take, uh, to in include it and in imply in your uh, in other systems. And um, uh, when we look at an other example, for example, this, um, this is a a responsive vocal biomarker. Um, when you're breathing uh, and making noise with your voice, your app, your phone can register what is going coming out of you. How loud is that? The volume and also the continuously. And in uh, this way, patients with asthma uh, can be... Uh, identified from patients of people with uh, healthy controls. So this is a very interesting development with your app and phone. I always want to say iPhone, but that's not uh, whatever phone it is. Um, and learn about it. And everything that has to do with the lungs is also important for our PID patients because the lungs are very regularly involved in inflammation or projectasis or or fibrosis. So this is a very important uh, system. Um, another recent uh, system, actually, is um, using 
the expiration air, using the expiration air. We are expire uh, a lot of compounds, a lot of molecules, thousands of them, thousands of them. So there is new technology now to measure what is coming out, spots, spots out of your respiration air. And with this new technology, we can uh, divide or we can identify certain diseases or have a differential diagnosis, and this can help to make the difference. Uh, for example, you can see over here on the slide in the graph um, the different molecules that are in the expression um, uh, air between sarcoidosis and controls, and even, even between interstitial lung disease and sarcoidosis. So why is this um, um, of great interest? Because patients with a primary immune deficiency suffer very regularly from granulomas that looks alike each other. And because there are so many molecules in that air, uh, it will release a few, let's see, changes. Um, I assume that in necrotic diseases, like necrotic granulomas and tuberculosis, or uh, GPA, it's a vasculitis, uh, there is, there is a, a, a difference. Um, but let's move now um, to the AI, artificial intelligence technology. Uh, I know, uh, Nick, this is very much your area. Um, can you provide an example for how can we use this, all this information integrated and what are your ideas? Examples. Yeah, no, I think I think we're all excited about the potential for AI and how that. Um, even though there's a lot of hype, I think there's a lot of uh, rational uh, benefit that we can expect through using this. As this slide is showing, really in improving asthma care, but certainly extending examples and use cases like this, um, where one would predict maybe the best medication to start a med to start a patient on with a certain endotype of asthma. We could extrapolate this to IEI, um, which route of subcutaneous or which route of immunoglobulin replacement therapy might be most optimal for the patient. Um, again, predicting clinical events and trajectories before they occur. I think being able to do this not only um, in uh, a clinical environment, like a clinic itself, an ambulatory environment or a hospital setting, but even you know in the outpatient setting would be a tremendous benefit. And I think there's a lot of optimism and excitement around this, this, this potential. Um, Theo, um, when you look at all possibilities, we got a lot of possibility now, to, even to uh, check the lungs by uh, a speedometer. Uh, we can measure the oxygen the level, cost, uh, and the steps that the patient is making a day. How can we use it, and does it can be integrated easy? What's the story? So one way of integrating is that, for example, we need to keep the batch numbers of all the um, immunoglobulin which is given to patient, which is very important which hopefully will never be needed to use that there's no bloodborne diseases. But there would be an integrated system for actually keeping all the batch numbers, which would be easily scanned in um, with a QR code, for example. And at the moment, we don't have an overgraded system, so it doesn't matter from which company the batch number actually comes, the immunoglobulin comes. 
to be able to scan that in and then send that to your um, physicians to see that you've given the immunoglobulin and that everything is all right. But Dr. Ryder, maybe you have something else to add to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this, um, as the slide sh here is showing, the, the opportunity to use multimodal data to synthesize this, um, whether it's, again, vocal biomarkers, as was shown in another slide, or um, laboratory data, uh, patient-reported outcome data, synthesize this together through AI or other technologies to, again, drive towards optimal therapies, optimal routes of therapy, and the prediction of clinical events, or hopefully optimal clinical events to move forward. So, very interesting. Um, this party, do you have something to add? Um, there's also, we just have started in the UK to use um, a system called EPIC, and um, which is basically a combined patient a computer system for the hospital. Part of that system is my chart, which is actually a patient portal so that the patients can see what's going on with them. They can see their blood results, they can see their correspondence, they can see their appointments, which is a very, very good system. One of the functionality it has is that you can send a message to the doctor, to the physician. And it is a little bit deceiving because it seems like a WhatsApp message type function, but it isn't. It actually goes to a system first and is validated there and then comes to the clinician, which can take 14 days. And sometimes makes the patient think that the doctor is not responding to them and not communicating with them. Okay. Part of EPIC is also that they can see their blood results. And that can be very, very good and that can be very dangerous as well because they then see that the blood results um, might be abnormal and might be abnormally concerned about them because we only replace IgG but not IgM and IgA. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, we go further and look... Uh, um, how to optimize the, the therapy and uh, specific challenges for immunoglobulin therapy. I think we all share um, the, the thinking that both the complexity of the therapy um, is important and that it provides an opportunity and a gap potentially to leverage technology to, to streamline this, to make it more time efficient um, and to dec decrease burden. Okay. When you, you talk about burden, um, the burden of IDG treatment and measured by the IG both 35. Um, there, um, when you see the, uh, how patients experience the burden, which doesn't reach the hundred and actually you see some differences between subcutaneously and intravenous, uh, immunoglobulin substitution. Can you, um, the difference your opinion? The difference between intravenously and subcut. So with intravenously, you only do it um, every three to four weeks, depending on the country you are in. But you have more systemic reactions likely, which need to be managed and it might take longer as such. Um, however, it is less frequent and less needle stick injuries. With subcut, you have more needle, sorry, not needle stick injuries, needle sticks. <laughs> With subcut, you have got more needle sticks and you do it more frequently, depending on the preparation. If you do facilitate it, you can do it every four weeks as well. Um, but you would have less, more local reaction and less systemic reactions. I think those are the main differences. There are more, but in the interest of time. But I assume uh, patients um, uh, like to have freedom to choose when they have their injection administered. Administration of IgG. 
It is very, very important. The um, intravenous is usually given in hospital and you need to come to hospital. You need to wait for somebody to put the line in and you need to wait for the treatment to start and sometimes for it to be prescribed. In the UK, we can give it at home, but we are the exception at that. Um, why subcut is given at home and you can do it anytime you wish, anytime which is possible for you and you can tailor it to yourself and that makes a huge difference. So you can do it in front of midsummer murders on a Sunday evening. Uh, manual integration of patients' data into hospital system. Um, I, I really appreciate these answers, actually, because <laughs> they do uh, focus on an area that I've been intensely interested in, and I think we all are, and that is uh, getting patients with IEIs diagnosed more expeditiously. And I think this is certainly an opportunity for technology using uh, algorithms, uh, again, synthesizing multimodal data, uh, to improve the diagnostic and shorten the com and compress the diagnostic odyssey for patients with IEI. And you expect the same, uh, yeah. Um The second one, I think, was treatment in IgG levels, if I remember correctly, and I think that is correct, managing the, your immunoglobulin levels in your patient and making sure they are high enough and not too high and that you're achieving the right amount that the patient is um, has less burden of infection as possible, but is not overdosed is a very important subject. But I think what's really interesting here is we think about the patient journey, only a fraction of that journey is in a healthcare setting, right? So we're, we're missing a lot of signal and mm -hmm. integrating that experience into our electronic health record systems, um, potentially leveraging the patient portal in more effective ways. We have to include a lot of characteristics from our patients, actually. Um, when you see over here, there are a lot of um, different uh, aspects um, in attributes like the IgG formulation. Uh, what is the solution contains? Contains it's a lot of uh, sodium. So that's not good when you have a hypertension. Um, the comorbidities of the patients, the burn out of care, side effects, dose rate a patient can um, need a very low rate otherwise they get um, a headache or a meningitis like syndrome and there's also something i think that's very important when we look now in our um, cohorts our patients 25 percent is older than 60 years of age and you know above 60 you have probably three to five common diseases, hypertension, obesity, diabetes, etc. And our patients, because of the success of the treatments in the past, get older. And so yeah, we have to uh, take care of that. Um, if they can manage the uh, immunoglobulin therapy, but also when you have congestive heart disease, don't give big high volumes with intravenous immunoglobulin. So these are important steps as well. And also the psychology, which can be measured with a DSQ-4, uh, 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 different uh, dimensions of symptoms of patients in immunodeficiency. One of our PhD students found out on the CVID, 50% had psychological uh, characteristics, anxiety, hospitalization, and the whole of that had a history of consulting a psychiatrist. So you have to take that in regard because that's very important also for the well-being of our patients. So um, 
what smart moves can be made or being made for simplifying home management of immunoglobulin um, therapy. Uh, Theo, can you give a history and how it came? <laughs> well, once upon a time, <laughs> um, Bruton's, um basically published an article in 1952 and he initially gave it subcut, but he gave immunoglobulin subcut in an XLA boy. Um, and it took too long, so they went for IM. It, the product wasn't purified enough to give IV. So until 1981, immunoglobulins were given intramuscular. And if you have an old patient who still had received the intramuscular formulation, it is quite interesting talking to them. It was very, very painful. It was very, very unpleasant. Um, they couldn't sit on their bum for roughly um, three days, and then three days later, they needed to have the indexed injection. In 1981, when IVIG came out, a lot of patients were started on IVIG, but it had to be closely monitored. It had to be done in hospital. There were side effects to intravenous um, immunoglobulins, such as shivering, such as nausea and vomiting, such as aseptic meningitis, which was mentioned before. So it needed to be well monitored. And in 1991, um, Subcut came on the market. So initially, we used an IM product for Subcut use. And um, it was very well. The side effects subside much, much quicker. They were locally. It was could be done at home with the patient without any problems. Either um, a guardian or a parent could be trained or the patients could do it themselves when they were old enough and um, they found it much, much easier. And um, then facilitated subcut came on the market. Um, subcut itself can be given via the push method or the pump method and facilitated can be given less frequency. So you can give it every three, four weeks and it makes it much, much easier. And Jill, um, or when we look at... Um the patient's uh, treatment preferences, so the frequency of their uh, therapy. Um, yeah, quite some are um, like to have it once a month. It's a, can you respond to that? Because that was very intriguing for me. I think it is, you don't want to have the treatment burden is very, very high in immunoglobulins. And if you have to give it on a regular basis, it's a week is very, very quick. We underestimated how fast a week comes around and they need to have the, um, the next infusion. And especially when they have local reactions. And sometimes it takes two to three days to actually go down and then it comes back again. So to have it only, only every four weeks does make a huge difference to the patient. Do you agree? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think these are words well spoken for sure, Theo. And, uh, you know, we engage in shared decision-making with our patients when we talk about the benefits of the various, you know, ways to administer immunoglobulin. And I think there's still a bit of trial and error. I think uh, we don't always appreciate in the present um, how well a patient will maybe tolerate the therapy, you know, over time. And of course, we're always continually trying to improve and we can modify and change the route of administration based on the patient's preferences. But if we could ascertain that and be maybe more informed and use some kind of maybe decision analysis to to get to that point sooner so that we start with a better chance of, uh, of reducing burden and providing the optimal therapy for that individual patient. I think that that's an exciting opportunity. Yeah, and then um, something about the, step, the steps of using 
technology. Um, uh, I know our, our patients are complaining a lot, a lot, complaining about the uh, venous excess, and especially patients who had other diseases like a malignancy previously or other intravenous uh, medication. So um, there are great opportunities. I see over here a vein finder, which is probably very nice for the patients to, to find it. And um, what, you, what you, you said already something about pre-filled syringes? And, um, yes. Um, so there are things out there which make it much, much easier. And one of the problems with immunoglobulins is the drawing up. It's quite viscous fluid. It's a little bit like olive oil when you draw it up, and it's quite hard to get it into the syringe or to push it. So there are things, if you have pre-filled syringes, it actually cuts down the time of giving your immunoglobulin quite a bit, um, and it helps the patient to do it. And there are also gadgets out there which can help you fill in and syringe, which makes it much, much easier, especially if you have a patient who's got dexterity problems. And can we use technology for yeah, I mean, I, I think we're surrounded by technology in this space. Um, certainly, when we think about FSGIG and um, pumps and so forth that that are used to administer it, um, there's been some recent work and an abstract published by uh, Duff et al. where decision where um, usability studies were implemented to understand how optimally a pump could be used, and and that was done with the patient's voice. So I think you know this this is a wonderful opportunity to. Use the patient's voice, combine that with healthcare providers, look at the device, the technology, and then really, you know, morph the technology into optimally serving the patient rather than saying, hey, here's a technology, um, you know, adapt to it. So I think this opportunity to not only have technology in the space, but to uh, make the technology malleable so that it serves the patient rather than the other way around is, uh, again, another opportunity. To improve technology, yeah, it uh, sounds really uh, uh, fantastic. Um, you know, we like to measure troll levels because troll levels are related to infections, and even you like higher troll levels in patients with severe lung disease, like Rohek disease. Um, and measuring this, patients have to come to the hospital to measure uh, your IgG. Um, but it can also be from home. Very nice recent study showed that with dried blood uh, spots, you can send them to the hospital, evaluate the IgG from it, and IgG is quite stable for a time, even at room temperature. And we are not uh, there yet. And it was also we discussed it this morning. Also, also exaggerated because of the COVID nineteen period not to come to the hospital, but do it at home. But a simple technique like this will give us much more information about the um, the levels of IgG in time in relation to complaints, to infectious diseases. It's, uh, that's really great, and I think it's not far away. And um, to record the, all these kinds of things, uh, uh, Nick and Tracking with apps, what is your, what, what, what do you have to choose? Yeah, no, I, I think, um, and we heard from Martine really in the first session about iPoppy's app or ID. I think an app like this that captures the patient's experience in real time is driven by the patient. Um, 
is a, is a great opportunity. And I think that, again, when we think about silos of data and interconnectivity of data, apps that would connect to the patient's electronic health record, um, should they choose to allow that? Um, and then be portable with it, should they choose to allow that, could synergize nicely with the information, volumes of information, but probably limited in scope in terms of, terms of the overall temporal experience of disease. So I think we're going to see more apps and more app functionality come that allows us to understand the outpatient experience and the lived experience for patients with IDI. So another um, result, more or less, um, from the COVID-19 period and also a lack of nurses, which in, in my country, we did a, bi a pilot study. The pilot study with uh, near real-time continuous remote mo monitoring. There's a poster from one uh, van der Wel uh, over here about this subject. So we measured the pulse rate, oxygen level, uh, the blood pressure, um, the blood pressure not continuous, but every uh, few minutes. Uh, to see if we can uh, infuse the patient at home and control the patient by a nurse uh, as you can see over here. There was a pilot study and actually that works except we didn't um, were aware of all different uh, circumstances at home. Patients play with a dog, go to the toilet, are cooking and whatever and that gives uh, quite some uh, disturbances in your, uh, in your signals. So we have to improve that. And um, but further, I think this is something with regard to the lack of nurses, it's probably also in other countries a big problem uh, to have a system like that because basically that works. Is it something you... In the UK, we already do um, IVIG at home. We train the patient and they use butterflies to um, butterfly themselves and give the medication at home. And we've done that for years and years and have very good responses with that. But with the emerging of subcut, the IVIG was at home was done less and less because subcut is so much safer from a side effect point of view and is so much easier. If you have the whole tummy and your thighs as a target, it's much better than just having a small incidency vein trying to get your butterfly into. And what do you think uh, in this system or for our system, because we always have a nurse, um, so that patients can use a chatbot when they have questions or that the chatbot advise when you have your IVIG or subcutaneous immunoglobulins. Yeah, I, I'm excited about this. I'm aware of one um, pending trial that's going to be coming live on clinicaltrials.gov that'll be testing the use of a voice AI to improve the usability and the patient's experience with home administration of immunoglobulin. And I think this is actually a great opportunity to take, again, that 12 to 7 or maybe 30 minutes that we have in an exam room and, and port that into the home environment where a patient may be able to speak to a device and ask questions that are frequently asked questions and feel that maybe they're not alone or they don't necessarily have to pick up the phone and they can use this voice-enabled AI to get real-time answers to questions as they're going through their therapy at home, especially as they're learning. I think we all have this experience of you know, trying to, to learn a process and it's challenging and sometimes intimidating and experienced differently by different people. And then, of course, with time, we learn and become comfortable. But if we can 
ease the burden with technology through something like a chat bot or a voice AI in the home that that uh, may may really really alleviate some of the burden. And it's an exciting opportunity again. It's really an opportunity. And uh, another issue is: Are we using are we using uh, artificial intelligence already in patients with a PID? And actually, um, the beginning is there. Um, for example, we can use artificial intelligence uh, when we take a biopsy of a patient. Patients with primary immune deficiencies are very radically lymph nodes. We'd like to know, is it malignant, yes or no? Um, which uh, artif- artificial AI pathology, they can see uh, in the thousand cells. And there, was also, there are no, also new technologies like cellular analyzers, what I showed over there, uh, deep learning, which you can make pictures 40 per second from a cell and measure ten thousands of cells without an antibody, no fucks, no fluorescent antibodies, but directly, and you can use the cells afterwards. And based on the morphology, the machine can say hey, that's a CD4 lymphocyte. And this is that. And we are going there. And another, I think, fairly interesting issue um, is the microbiology. The start has been made to uh, bioprint bacteria, bioprint them from fluid. And with, what are you using for that? The technology of a laser printer from 20 years ago. You spot uh, a trillion part of a liter, it's nothing, with a few bacteria, use nanoparticles that bind to the molecules in the bacteria, um, use a laser beam, it's a short story, <laughs> and more molecules are moving the whole time, and this gives a certain spectrum of molecules in the bacteria, which is specific, like your analyze your DNA, that's really amazing. That's called Raman uh, spectroscopy. Also, uh, the radiologists, also in our hospital, probably in your hospital, also are using now uh, AI to look at CT scans or MRIs. And this can be integrated all. So it's not very far away, actually. Um, Nick, what do you think about genetic analysis? Because this is so important for primary immune deficiencies. Yeah, this this can you uh, have your view? No, 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 absolutely. And um, I'm grateful that um, although I'm not working in the space, that colleagues are and trying to predict. And of course, I think genomics is an area where prediction algorithms have been used for years to help us understand whether a variant is pathologic or not. Um, but I think some of the additional work to ascertain whether a single point mutation could lead to a gain of function variant or a loss of function variant and explain the clinical phenotype um, is is tremendous work. I also think the omics world that we're trying to get our arms around, and that is truly big data, um, can be leveraged in greater capacity through uh, algorithmic approaches, especially again, as we look at transcriptomics, genomics, proteomics, et cetera. When we look at that, um, uh, Tio, uh, it's a Zuni. <laughs> And you are very good in journeys. <laughs> so, can you give your command for this journey of the patient? Um, 
I think when the patient initially arrives and diagnosis, looking at the future, a lot of the diagnosis is going to be done by genetics. And um, we are all very keen at genetics. And I remember my doctors having stars in their eyes when they're seeing a patient and saying, we found a genetic mutation. And then quite often the patient comes back to me and say, well, you still need to have your immunoglobulins and you still need to have regular blood tests taken, I'm afraid. This remains the same, but we are getting there. We are getting in faster diagnosis and we are getting better. With regards to treatment, we've come such a long way from IM injections to now having subcut, having facilitated, having the push method, having the pump method, having IV. There are lots of choices and we can tailor the medication towards the patient to make sure that they have an adequate trough level and that they are compliant then that the burden of treatment is not too high for the patient. And you think also we have to make a virtual twin of ourselves? That is very important as well, exactly. And um, having a more concise follow-up with the patient, and I think there's a different follow-up between the clinicians and between the nurse follow-up. I would like to know if the patient still can do the treatment at home, if everything has remained the same or anything has come different if they need to, um, you know, if the wife always inserted the needle and she's not there anymore. And I think from data integration, I'll hand over to you two. So we have a few questions here. Yeah. Uh, one here that's highlighted, how safe are the apps, devices, or AI? Um, is there a system in place that ensures they are not harmful? Um, so this looks like it was a while ago, but we'll take it from today. Uh, so I think this is a really relevant question. I, um, I think while, again, there's a lot of promise for AI, um, the, the guardrails that are important around equitability, um, generalizability, ensuring that these algorithms are helpful and these apps are helpful for anyone anywhere in the world is critically important. And so I think that's going to get to um, not set it and forget it mentality, but a continuous um, assessment of whether the app or the algorithm is doing what it was intended to do or whether its performance has drifted one way or the other. So I think this is a really relevant question. There's also a question, what about developing countries? And that's an interesting question as well, because um, I am very much related to how far I have cooperations with uh, Southeast Asia, and that's developing very fast, but not everywhere. I think AI can help to make the diagnosis um, and also help, for example, uh, when we have an, a mutation or a variant of undetermined significance. You want to prove that you have to go a year in the laboratory to make cell lines and etc. etc. This technology probably can help based on the changes in the protein if it's a gain or loss of function or a really damaging protein. So this will help probably the developing countries as well, I think. Yeah, well, I think the digital divide is really important. And I think we need to be cognizant that expensive technology is a barrier and it becomes a disparity uh, if it's not accessible by everyone. So I think what's important is not maybe so much the actual device, um, but the, the workflow and the workflow that ultimately drives uh, towards optimal outcomes. And I think that is a science that can reach everyone and anyone. I um, mean, we have to be very thoughtful and mindful that we don't include or increase disparities uh, through things like the digital divide. 
There's also uh, a question about um, are we not overruling the patients with multiple apps and technology and how do we think that they respond? Yeah. And I know we're at time, um, but yeah, let me, and, and Theo, I don't know if, do you want to share? Okay, I'll say something. <laughs> I know we, we want to be cognizant and uh, respectful of time and we are at time, but um, yeah, I, I think we, we're still learning about this. I, I think that end user feedback will be really important about the apps because when we create an app, we have an expectation that it'll perform in a certain way, but the end user may have a very different experience. So I think to be able to capture that in a real way and understand um, what's working, what's not working with an app and continuously improve that is really relevant um, so that it continues to have value. Okay. Um, the last uh, take home message. You see the slide over here, uh, my students say sheets. Uh, you see population. You see clinician, you see patient, costs, healthcare, and this all related to all these data that we um, that are, that are available now. We are living in an uh, area of technical and bioinformatical changes. Uh, let's call it progress, in my opinion. Uh, this will have tremendous effect on the whole society, so also healthcare, so also patients with a primary immune deficiency. We have uh, presented the development of uh, an artificial pancreas in diabetes. And even we didn't talk about organoids, for example. Takes two hours more, I'm afraid. Uh, collection of data will prove diagnostic approaches in many diseases. In PITS, for example, give you more information about the infections, uh, exposure uh, to infections all around the world, antibiotic resistance, which is extremely important. Translations of the impairment of the immune system by your uh, DNA, genetics, uh, and and these analyzers give a more uh, personalized approach and also for the therapy uh, after this. Um, but um, it was already mentioned that um, we have to keep an eye on privacy, but I think in such a way that the patient is protected, but not delaying the progress. Not too many people have to be involved because then at the end the patient is being short change and i like to uh, end this session but not before i thank leo theo and i thank nick for your excellent contribution thank you so much this has been an activity published by pure voice